Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Before we begin, I, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might really, really enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls and hackers and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel this, this giant mystery with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, even a former Russian KGB agent. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Semple. He goes on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. You can listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the ongoing history of new music. Do it. Trust me, you'll love it. Listen, before we start the show today, a quick note. Thanks to you, the Ongoing History of New Music podcast has been racing up the podcast charts, and we've been receiving a bunch of email and direct messages from fans of the show that you wanted to hear more episodes. Okay, done. We've heard you, and we're happy to do just that. So we're ramping things up around here. You will now get an additional Ongoing History of New Music podcast every week all summer long. So that's two shows for the price of, well, none. So get it. I mean, show is free. Okay, wait. Also, enjoy this week's episode. Here we go. The music industry is dominated by three major record labels, Universal, Sony, and Warner. They are multinational entities that control most of the world's trade in music and all the revenue that goes with it. But beyond those three companies are hundreds, thousands of labels that do their own thing. And because they are unaffiliated with the big three, we consider them to be independent. They are the indie labels. The musicians who record for them are indie artists. This is the universe of the underground, the non-mainstream, the experimental, the daring, the outliers, the unusual, the non-conformist, or, if you prefer, the not ready for prime time. At least not now. Maybe never. The indie universe is the engine of change for rock and roll. Whatever sounds and trends and fads are coming next, start here. And it's through their work and their art that we're all dragged into the future. I shall illustrate. This is part two of the history of indie rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Okay, it's a bit harsh, but fine. Indie Hipster Kid by the Theodora Kelly Project, who record for an indie label called Not Dead Yet Records. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the second part of a history of indie music and indie rock. On part one, we looked at the importance of independent record labels when it came to nurturing and promoting musicians exiled from the mainstream during the 60s and 70s. This realm pushed for change and evolution from below with their do-it-yourself mentality. Before we leave the 1970s entirely, we really should acknowledge a few other contributors to this history, starting with the Buzzcocks. Their first record marked a huge, huge milestone in the creation and dissemination of indie rock. 
The Buzzcocks were formed in Manchester in 1976 by two guys, Pete Shelley and Howard DeVoto. Both were big Velvet Underground fans and had started paying more attention to this thing that people were calling punk. They arranged for a still unknown band called the Sex Pistols to play the Lesser Free Trade Hall in Manchester on June 4th, 1976, a show that has gone down in myth and legend as one of the most important gigs in the history of rock. Only 40-some people were there, but they left to form bands like Joy Division and the Pet Shop Boys and Simply Red and the Smiths and to establish factory records. The Buzzcocks were energized by the night. Right, let's do this! But with the scene being so new, there were no labels interested in releasing this kind of music. So they established their own label. On January 29, 1977, they released an EP called Spiral Scratch. This was the first punk record to be self-released. They did everything by themselves with no outside help. Not only could anyone be in a rock band, but they proved that anyone could release a record on their own. I cannot tell you how much of a revelation this was to young musicians back then. Listen, if these two inexperienced yobs from Manchester could do it, so could anybody. I mean, Manchester was this musical backwater that people in London never even thought about. The Buzzcocks called their label New Hormones. It cost them all of 500 pounds to record and release Spiral Scratch. And the hit from this EP, if you want to call it that, was entitled Boredom. The Buzzcocks and Boredom from their landmark indie release Spiral Scratch, an EP from 1977. Okay, back to this idea of a couple of guys in Manchester doing something as radical as starting their own record label. This was a massive inspiration for other people who were determined to get this underground music heard. In the next four years, more than 900 indie records were released in Britain this way. Jerry Dammers grew up in the industrial city of Coventry, a place that was home to a lot of West Indian immigrants. He became entranced by the sounds of ska and reggae that the new settlers brought with them. Energized by the spirit of punk and inspired by this music from the West Indies, Jerry became committed to bringing ska to a new generation. Now, the problem was that no established record label was interested in his vision. So he started his own label and he called it Two-Tone. This became not just a record label, but a sound and a cultural movement promoting racial harmony. Jerry's band was called The Specials, and they became one of the most important flag carriers in the revival of ska, so-called third-wave ska, and his efforts created the foundations for the ska punk that still lives today. The very first Specials records on Two-Tone was this one. 5,000 copies were sent out in May 1979, and this song reached number six on the British charts. That never, ever happened with an indie record. Much of the ska punk and ska pop that we hear today can be traced back to that attempt to bring this music back. The Specials, and the first ever single released on Two Tone Records in the spring of 1979. 
This was just one example of the kind of music that grew out of the original British punk rock explosion. Punk had showed everybody that anyone who wanted to make music should be able to make music. This sounds like common sense now, but back then, that wasn't the case. Before punk, you had to be a pro musician with serious skills. Punk showed that only attitude mattered. Once that was established, all sorts of stuff that would have never been possible before punk started coming out. A lot of this material didn't sound like punk, but if you listened to it, you could tell that punk had happened. And there were plenty of people who wanted to get in on the action. And that included a TV host from Manchester named Tony Wilson. Now, Tony was one of the guys at that Sex Pistols show promoted by the Buzzcocks in 1976. And as a tireless promoter of Manchester culture, especially music, he decided that the city needed its own indie label. He called the company Factory Records after a local nightclub night. The very first Factory release was issued on December 24th, 1978. Two seven-inch singles bundled together, featuring samples from four bands on the roster. Side A was taken up with two songs by a band called Joy Division. One of them was called Digital. Digital, from Joy Division, part of the first ever release by Factory Records of Manchester. Factory went on to become one of the great British indie labels of all time. So much music flowed from this company. Joy Division, and then New Order, two of the most influential alt-rock bands of all time. The Happy Mondays, part of the holy trinity of Manchester. Cabaret Voltaire, who helped create the heavy form of electronic music called industrial music. And with Factory, it was more than just about the music. It was all about the aesthetic, the care given to album artwork and packaging, the quirkiness of their cataloging system, the establishment of the Hacienda nightclub, which became ground zero for so much of British dance culture throughout the 1980s. And perhaps the not-so-good stuff, like never asking bands to sign formal contracts, the dodgy accounting, the lack of attention to things like, um, oh, cash flow. As a business, Factory was a basket case, and eventually they went broke in a spectacular way. But as a label from which influential and important music flowed, fantastic. In the early and mid-80s, the major labels were still firmly in control of the majority of music. But the market share of all things indie was starting to creep up there every year a little bit more. What started in the punk years just kept gaining in momentum. Let's stay in the UK for a bit. The left-of-center slash underground stuff that was being released by the indie labels kept on coming, and as post-punk music continued to separate and segment into an ever-growing number of streams, things kept getting more and more interesting. Becker's Banquet grew out of a chain of record stores run by Martin Mills and Nick Austin. They loved the whole do-it-yourself ethic of punk, and they bought into the idea 100%. They called their indie label Beggar's Banquet Records. Amazing, yeah? and started by releasing a record by a band called The Lurkers. But things expanded quickly and eventually exponentially. The Beggars Group, as it's now called, is the center of a solar system of labels that include Matador, Rough Trade, XL Recordings, and Young Turks. The roster features names like Radiohead, Jack White, The Strokes, Queens of the Stone Age, which makes all of those artists certifiably indie. The group is also home to this woman from Tottenham, England, named Adele. 
Yeah, her. She records for XL, so she's an indie artist. Each of these labels have had amazing successes. For example, 4AD was established as a place where the more avant-garde acts could be tested out. If they did well, well, then they would graduate up to Beggars, the big dog in the office. But it didn't quite work out that way. Instead, 4AD found a sizable number of fans who appreciated the label's weirdness. Its reputation got to the point where people bought records because they were on 4AD, and not necessarily because they'd heard of the band. The thinking was, well, that if it's good enough for 4AD, it's good enough for me. It was more of a cult than anything, and certain types of music fans just had to be part of it. There were groups like Throwing Muses and This Mortal Coil, Dead Can Dance and The Birthday Party, Modern English and The The. And when the Pixies couldn't find a record deal in the United States, 4AD took them and turned them into one of the most influential American indie bands of the late 80s and early 90s. But 4AD's greatest contribution to the evolution of music may have been a studio project called Mars. This was a collaboration between some 4AD musicians, producers, and DJs. Using little more than samples for more than two dozen other recordings, they created a Frankenstein monster of a song. They used James Brown, Run DMC, Africa Bombada, Cool and the Gang, Public Enemy, Islamic music, chanting, a movie trailer, and various sound effects. No one had ever deconstructed and then reconstructed music in this fashion before. There was just the one single, but it had an incalculable effect on dance music, hip-hop, and any form of alt-rock that was into sampling. And it came from the indie world. Mars and Pump Up the Volume from 1987, one of the most important indie dance records of the decade. And it was released on 4AD, one of the key British independent labels of its day. Another company who was right there was Creation, founded by Scotsman Alan McGee in 1983. He'd grown bored with the synth-based music of the time and decided to form a label that would release stuff that he liked, material that sounded more like the promise of the Sex Pistols. The first release came from an artist called The Legend in the summer of 1983, but Pay Dirt came in November 1984 when Creation released a single by the Jesus and Mary Chain. Their single sold well enough that Creation started getting some serious attention, and of course, the chain went on to become one of the most notorious of the noisy bands of the 1980s. Creation later signed My Bloody Valentine, an Irish band that took guitar noise and walls of sound to new levels, influencing scores of new bands, ranging from groups like The Verve and The Smashing Pumpkins and Nine Inch Nails and Silver Sun Pickups and Garbage and Nirvana to an uncountable number of shoegaze and fuzz bands. This gives us an excuse to play some of this music. My Bloody Valentine spent two years making an album called Loveless that literally bankrupted Creation. But it's still cited as a record that became a sonic blueprint for hundreds, if not thousands of bands through the 90s and right up until today. Here's My Bloody Valentine in a track called Only Shallow. My Bloody Valentine with Only Shallow from 1981, released on the Creation label. A couple of years later, founder Alan McGee would sign a new band called Oasis, 
But that's a story for the next program. By the middle 80s, indie music, which for all intents and purposes was the same as what we would call alternative music here in North America, was really pushing its weight around. But then something happened to step things up even more. It was a cassette that you had to order from one of the British music papers. The enemy wanted a hook to boost circulation, so they resurrected the idea of offering a cassette with one of their 1986 issues. They called it C86, a play on the year, 1986, and how cassette lengths were labeled. There was C60, C90, C120. That was based on the number of minutes that could be recorded on both sides. This collection featured a bunch of power-pop, jangly guitar-based songs from 22 bands from a variety of indie labels across the UK, reflecting the state of new music in Britain at the time. They tapped labels like Creation and Rough Trade and a bunch of others. It was so successful that C86 became a shorthand term to describe a certain sound and attitude when it came to a certain type of music. In hindsight, some consider the release and subsequent success of this cassette to be the beginning of the modern era of indie music in the UK. Instead of these musicians doing their own do-it-yourself things around the country, C86 showed that A, they weren't alone, and B, that there was interest in what they were doing. People will tell you that this tape caused an explosion of new bands around Britain. Most of the bands on the tape went absolutely nowhere, but a few did achieve some levels of success. The Wedding Present, Fuzzbox, The Soup Dragons, The Mighty Lemon Drops. And then there was this group on the Creation label, who not only became rather famous, but a later indie band took the title of their C86 contribution as a name for themselves. This is Primal Scream and Velocity Girl. Eighty-one seconds, and we're done. Primal Scream with Velocity Girl, the first track on the mythical C86 cassette collection. As this tape was getting people excited about the possibilities of new music, Rough Trade was home to the biggest indie band of the era, whose influences are still being talked about today. They were the Smiths. Their sound was really simple. Guitar, bass, drums, vocals. Influences were equal parts 1960s rock and what was being produced in the post-punk era. Johnny Marr's guitar playing was fresh, yet familiar. Morrissey's lyrics were often deep and poetic, tapping into a level of emotion and sensitivities that few could reach. And because he could be so antagonistic, he was always making the music press. As a package, the Smiths were a pushback against the synthesizers and drum machines that dominated the early part of the 1980s. In the process, they created the foundations for two important indie eras of the future— Madchester in the late 80s and early 90s, and the Britpop that dominated the rest of the decade. Not only were they the most important British band of the 80s, they are, by far, the most important indie band that the UK and alt-rock has ever produced. I would go out tonight, but I haven't got a stitch to The Smiths, with this charming man, released on Rough Trade in the UK and distributed in North America by Sire Records, a very important part of our history of indie music. In a moment, we'll rotate back to North America. 
something had happened there that prompted big growth in independent music, and that something had nothing to do with music. Hang tight. Hi, this is Alan Cross. Welcome to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, our weekly exploration of the stories and characters that made modern music what it is today. We want to make this podcast one of your favorites. So if you love the show, do me a favor, tell a friend about it, or rate it on iTunes if that's your thing. We'd really love it if you do that. Or you can just drop me an email with your thoughts to alan at alancross.ca. Maybe you want more information on something you hear, or maybe you have an idea for a topic for a future episode. Whatever. I guarantee your response. Alan at alancross.ca. Whether you're listening one at a time or binging on a bunch of podcasts all at once, we're glad to have you here. All right. Let's talk music, shall we? This is part two of our history of indie music, and if we're going to be honest in telling the story, we have to give a substantial amount of credit to Ronald Reagan. You heard me. Reagan was a deeply conservative and hawkish Republican president, and his policies did not sit well with a lot of young people. Some of what these young people had to say manifested itself in hardcore punk. Hardcore comes from the fast, hard, radical, and angry end of the punk rock spectrum. Its roots can be found in the late 1970s in California. It was both anti-establishment and anti-hippie. It was deliberately anti-commercial and positioned itself against what they considered to be the corrupt music industry. All right, so if this is the way it was going to be, there was no chance that the existing record labels were going to work with any hardcore acts. So the only thing these acts could do start their own labels. One of the first was SST, founded by guitarist Greg Jinn. He'd started the company in 1966 when he was just 12, and the purpose was to sell electronic components through the mail. But in 1978, he turned it into a record label to distribute material from his band because no other label wanted to touch what they were doing. The band was called Black Flag. Flag became one of the most important American Indiacs of all time, especially after a kid from Washington, D.C. named Henry Rollins joined in as vocalist. Not only did SST release Flag records, they were also too happy to spread hardcore from groups like the Minutemen, the Meat Puppets, and dozens of others. The longer Reagan stayed in office, the more popular and more widespread hardcore became, and the more records SST put out. The first release on the label was a Black Flag EP entitled Nervous Breakdown in 1979. From that record, this is Wasted, and it pretty much describes how a typical hardcore kid might have felt back then. That's it. 51 seconds. Hardcore was short, sharp, and fast. If that's all you needed to get out your message, well, so be it. Another band that found themselves in the same boat as Black Flag was Bad Religion. No one wanted to release their stuff either, so they had to establish their own label, and they called theirs Epitaph. At first, Epitaph was a vehicle for just Black Flag records. The first release from the label was their self-titled EP in 1981. Here's side one, track one, and it's called, what else? Bad religion. Bad religion. Bad religion with a song called Bad Religion 
the first thing anyone ever heard when they released their first self-titled EP on their own Epitaph label in February of 1981. The company eventually grew beyond just hardcore punk, and in fact, at one point, one of their bands was the biggest selling indie band in the history of the universe, but we will come back to that. We need to keep with hardcore because this scene was so important in establishing the entire universe of indie music in the early 1980s. Next up is Alternative Tentacles, another California label formed by a band who couldn't find anyone else to believe in them. This was the label of the Dead Kennedys. At first, they just wanted to get one of their singles out there, but they enjoyed the experience so much that they decided to turn Alternative Tentacles into a full-time business, just like Black Flag eventually did with SST and Bad Religion with Epitaph. And because Alternative Tentacles managed to develop a relationship with other labels around the world, other indie labels, they were able to export American hardcore to places it had never been. This is the first Alternative Tentacles release. It's the Dead Kennedys with their self-produced single, California Uber Alice. Self-produced indie hardcore punk from 1979 with the Dead Kennedys. Bottom line to all this hardcore history is that thanks to Ronald Reagan, hardcore was born and helped create the need, desire, and demand for a new generation of independent record labels that would quickly extend far beyond what these labels were all about. We're two episodes deep into this history of indie rock, and we're only up to about 1981. On the next installment, we'll look at how things exploded in the early 80s. All the foundations had been built. Now it was time for this music to somehow reach into new places. And a big part of this story has to do with college radio stations. Should you want to reach me anytime about anything, I can be found at alan at alancross.ca. I promise to answer everything, too. You can also check out my website at ajournalofmusicalthings.com. That's where you can subscribe to the newsletter, which arrives in your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern every weekday. It's a really cool way to start your music day. And you can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, and Instagram. Let's talk. Let's connect. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.